Hello and welcome to the Body Electric Podcast, uh, the podcast where jazz musicians talk about the music they make. And uh, my name's Nathan Hiltz, and this is episode 31. Uh, I'm very pleased to say that my guest for this episode is the great saxophone player Kirk McDonald. Uh, we recorded this podcast live at the Jazz Bistro in Toronto last month, and uh, we had a really good time. Uh, I think we talked for about an hour and 20 minutes, probably one of the longer episodes of this show. And uh, I really learned a lot. He really made me think. He really made me stop and uh, and take the time to really understand what he was saying because he's really he's a musician that's on a on another level. And uh, yeah, I feel really inspired about this one, and I hope you do too. Um, so if you want to learn more about me or hear more podcasts, go to my website nathanhiltz.com. Uh, and then there's Instagram and Twitter and all that, uh, Nate Hiltz, N-A-T-E-H-I-L-T-Z. Okay, thanks a lot, and enjoy the show. Bye-bye.
Thank you very much. All right. Welcome to the Jazz Bistro. Welcome to the Body Electric Podcast. My name's Nathan Hiltz, and this is Kirk McDonald. Hi there. Hi. Thank Hi, you. guys. Hi, each and every single one of you. It's nice to be here. Um, so w what this is, is this is a, a jazz podcast. And so we're recording this uh, to be streamed online, and we're going to play a little bit, and we're going to talk a little bit about music and about jazz music. And uh, I'm very pleased to have Kirk McDonald as my special guest today, the great saxophone player. Thanks, Nathan. And happy birthday to uh, Charlie Parker. Yeah, that was a tribute to the uh, one and only uh, Charlie Parker. Um, it was his birthday today, would have been his birthday. And um, if my math is right, I think he would have been 98 years old. So uh, that was something associated with Charlie Parker called Star Eyes. So that was our humble tribute to the great Charlie Parker. What, was Charlie Parker your guy at a young age? Uh, was that one of your first guys for the saxophone? Very much so. Um, I'm trying to think. The, 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 the first two jazz recordings I heard, um, I think it was around 11 or 12, were uh, Dave Brubeck's Time Out, and there was... Um, Charlie Parker recording. Um, it was on a label called Jazz Archives, and it was a white, white LP with a blue picture of Charlie Parker on it. And I know White Christmas was on there, and it was it was kind of like a greatest hits kind of thing. And um, uh, there were some other tunes on there, and so that was really um, the first jazz music that really resonated with me, and. Uh, actually got me thinking about uh, some of the things you could do on the saxophone, or some of the things he could do on the saxophone. Right, let, right. let me rephrase that, yeah. And were there, uh, was there a good record shop in uh, New Waterford? No, there wasn't. No? No. Uh, New you Waterford, had, you had to Scotia. dig, dig uh, 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 very deeply to find good jazz recordings in Cape Breton, which is where I grew up. Right. But uh, you did uh, have uh, some good teachers back in, uh, in Cape Breton when you were growing up, right? I sure did. Yeah. yeah. No, I was, I was very fortunate. I, I, I started playing at a young age. Um, not saxophone. I, I uh, started playing electric bass when I was about eight years old and um, uh, played with some musicians from the neighborhood. And uh, so we, you know, we kind of thrashed around for uh, quite some time without much instruction. And... Um, uh, eventually, I got to the saxophone around 10 and started in the, uh, the school band program under uh, a gentleman by the name of Terry Hill, mm. who uh, uh, was a huge influence at that time and uh, basically studied uh, with Terry in a lot of different situations, uh, playing in the uh, concert band, jazz band, um, uh, different saxophone quartets, all, all kinds of different things like that. Uh, started getting involved in the community, playing with some musicians in the community. Um, I met Don Palmer, uh, I think when I was around 13, mm. and studied with uh, Don uh, my last couple of years of high school. And he was uh, a huge influence and a great teacher and uh, uh, very inspirational. 
That's cool. And so were you, a, were you a big practicer at that time, or was it more like a practical type of uh, saxophone, uh, just learning on the job? No, in, the, in, in my younger years, I practiced a lot uh, throughout high school and stuff like that. Um, I played professionally all throughout high school. I started playing professionally when I was eight, <laughs> believe it or not, yeah. Wow. And, um, and uh, pretty much all through high school, um, played, uh, you know, rock bands. You know, we used to tour the Maritimes. Underage? Underage, yeah. Right. yeah I remember I, when I was young in the Maritimes, uh, there was a... Uh, the union had a thing that we could sign and fill out as long as we had a guardian with us that we could play in the bars after you know, after hours or whatever. I don't yeah. think that's the case here in in Toronto, but uh, I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, we uh, we got special permission from the musicians union to to work in clubs. I joined a musicians union I think when I was uh, twelve or thirteen. Whoa! So you're a and gold star member. Gold star uh, member. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. cool. And. Um, but uh, yeah, we got special permission to play in clubs because uh, in Nova Scotia there there were pretty strict uh, uh, licensing things that happened with clubs and bars and stuff like that. But uh, you know, all, all all through high school and even junior high, I mean, I was I was working professionally. Uh, you know, uh, typically we would uh, take Friday afternoon off, travel for the weekend, do one-nighters, concerts, bars, whatever, and then, um, you know, maybe get back for Monday morning, if not Monday afternoon or Tuesday. So, you know, I mean, there was a lot of that, more more so in the later years, you know. Um, but uh, so so that was a big part of it, but, but also the community, I mean... Um, I had mentioned Terry Hill earlier. Uh, he had encouraged a number of students from from his high school program to uh, uh, apply to Berkeley College of Music to study in the summer program there. So um, there were five kids from his high school. Now, when you think about a town of 10,000 people, mm. you get five people uh, involved in music, uh, uh, shipping off to study for the summer. That was quite something. Uh, we were all professional musicians at the time, so um, we actually decided we would uh, go to a musician's union meeting and vote ourselves a scholarship to go to Berkeley. Oh, and wow. <laughs> wow, wow. And, and actually did that because, uh, you know... Um, not a lot of people showed up at those meetings, so uh, we went in and did that, and um, basically spent a week uh, in New York at the Newport Festival. Took scholarship money and bought tickets to uh, uh, concerts between uh, Carnegie Hall and Lincoln Center every night. Your so mind must have been blown coming from oh there. It was, it was fantastic. I mean, that must and have really uh, set you on the path. Well, that was kind of the turning point for me. I was 15 at the time. And uh, so we spent a week in New York. We went to two concerts a night. Um, I'm thinking of who I heard. Thelonious Monk, Miles Davis, Stan Getz, Stan Kenton Band, Woody Herman Band, Roland Kirk, Freddie Hubbard, Keith Jarrett, Oregon. Um, probably forgetting a few people. But you wow. know, basically marching back and forth between uh, Lincoln Center and Carnegie Hall. Right. You know, so so that that was quite an experience, and I mean, for me, that was actually a turning point as well because um, at that point, I I I had a good idea of 
or I had a better idea of what it took to to be a musician and that, uh, you know, what I thought was really hard practicing was really way off the mark, you know. And so, you know, from the ages of 15 to 17, I, I think that's when I really started getting much more serious about uh, pursuing music in a, in a realistic way. Right. Yeah. And so what was, what was next for you after, uh, after high school? Um, well, I moved here. To Toronto. Yeah. yeah, to Toronto from Nova Scotia. Uh, I attended Humber College for a year. Um, and uh, started working professionally here. So I, I stayed in school for a year. I was, um, uh, you know, as I said earlier, I mean, Don Palmer was a huge influence. I studied with Don my last two years of high school. Don is here tonight, so I'd like yeah, to nice acknowledge to see you, his Don. presence. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's been a huge influence. And um, so uh, in in some ways I was well on my way to to becoming a player, at least in my head, you know. I mean, I played okay, but, but I, I was very determined. So, so I was in a bit of a rush to, to get to that. So I was a little impatient with being in school. I stayed a year and decided not to go back. Uh, I started playing professionally in town here. Um, took a little while to get hooked up, but I started playing with a band called the Lincolns, um, which was... Uh, uh, a great R&B band that was uh, uh, just started at the time. I'm talking this uh, 1979. Wow! And um, and we used to work six nights a week, every week. No wonder you couldn't go to school. <laughs> <laughs> so you know there was that. There was another band called Manteca, which you may have heard of. That oh, I was I've also seen videos of with. you guys yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I was in the videos, but I was there for about four years. And that band started around 78 or 79. And we used to, to uh, work uh, Saturday, Sunday matinees. So, so my first year working professionally here was basically working six nights a week playing R&B and playing uh, a couple of gigs on weekends playing with uh, really good uh, musicians. So, so at that time, uh, like, what, what was your practice like? On the saxophone, like oh, I used to practice all the time. Yeah, all transcribing the time. is that yeah, something so you did? Or uh, more technique? Uh, more technique. Um, in terms of transcription and stuff like that, uh, I would say my late teens to early twenties was when I did most of that, and uh, I wouldn't say a lot, but probably enough. Um, uh, I did some of that, but I was more interested in trying to to find my own way with things. So. I mean, one of the things I would do would, would be take bits and pieces, perhaps, of solos and learn those things in 12 keys. Mm. Take bebop lines and learn those in 12 keys. And so I, I was uh, you know, learning tunes in 12 keys and things like that. So, so I was always trying to be thorough with um, uh, just the whole process of, of learning, you know, learning lines, learning about harmony, learning uh, uh, chord progressions, mm. learning songs, and, and trying to, to um, uh, be diligent about how I did that, mm. you know. So, so, you know, I would, uh, for the longest time, I mean, it, it would be lines, and when I got better at that, then it would be longer lines. And then it would be Charlie Parker blues heads, and when when that seemed to get a little easier, then it would be you know 
longer forms, like taking lines, learning them in 12 keys. And that was great because, you know, there's a, like if you take someone like Charlie Parker as a, a, a model, I mean, there's so much melodic, rhythmic, and harmonic content in those tunes. Mm. If you take a tune like Donna Lee or uh, Ornithology or Quasimodo or Little Willie Leaps, and you learn those tunes in 12 keys, you have the tunes as well because they're so specific harmonically. So I spent a lot of time with that kind of thing, just learning repertoire, but, but you know, also studying harmony and things like that. And so at that time, uh, wh when did you start leading groups? Like you talk about wanting to find your own sound, so was that more in the just in the context of being a sideman, or were you starting to write and, and do your own kind of thing in your well, early 20s? Well, I started writing very, very young, but... Um, I I can't really say that there was any impact on my development other than than sort of getting into the craft mm. and spending a number of years doing that and getting all those bad tunes out of the way and right. overwriting and uh you know being very specific with with that but but you know that's that's a process like playing is so so um I think from a very early age, I always led my own bands, but I but I had the the good sense to to hire uh, people who were more experienced than me that that were open. I played well enough that that uh, y you know uh, older, more experienced players were were very encouraging. So they you know they sort of helped out the process a lot. Um, uh, and playing with peers as well, but uh, you know, I've I've always done both. Mm. You know, um, I mean, some of the earlier gigs for me were with great established jazz musicians. Um, I think the first one uh, of any note would have been with Dave Young's quartet, and that's mm. around eighty one, eighty two, and um, and that was a great band with Joe Benza and Mark Eisenman. And uh, and then later Barry Romberg came in to that band. Uh, Claude Ranger, who was a phenomenal musician, I think one of the unsung heroes of jazz music in Canada. Uh, I worked with Claude, uh, that was around the same time, I think 82, 83, somewhere in there. And, uh, and so those were like the, the first real serious, you know, established players that I worked with. So, I mean, I always had my eyes open and 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 never took those uh, situations for granted. I mean, I was learning on the job, but I was, you know, also taking in a lot of information, but mm. also covering the gig. Um, so, so those kind of situations were inspirational. I mean, Bernie Sinensky, somebody else I started working with at a very young age, Pat LaBarbera. Uh, and then from there, Sam Noto. But I, uh, during all that time, I always led my own bands. But so, so they were, uh, I suppose, influenced by those situations. But uh, but also, I was you know trying to find my own thing. I was doing a lot of playing with um, Jerry Fuller around that time, um, Steve Wallace, Mark Eisenman, Lauren Lofsky, and I have been playing together for. It's getting close to 40 years now, 37, wow. 38 years. It's hard to believe. That's amazing. You know, and, and so, you know, a lot, of, a lot of things happened off the bandstand, too. There was a lot of sessioning going on and playing duets with different people. Um, so, mm. yeah. Cool. So 
Um, I'm wondering, uh, when did you start working with Sam Noto? Um, I uh, probably mid '80s, mid '80s, somewhere yeah. in there. Um, I used to sit in with Sam uh, when I was younger, and he always was very generous and allowed some of us younger guys to come up and play. And um, as long as we didn't play too long or too out or whatever, you know, <laughs> I mean, as long as we understood the situation and the gig, he was cool because he liked what he heard. You know, he was encouraging in his own way. Um, and so I would say some of that started happening probably even you know, 83, 84, 85. Um, I think the first sort of official gig I did with him was probably around 85, and then I moved to Ottawa. So uh, when I came, and we worked together a bit in the uh, mid to late 80s, and then when I came back to town in 91, um, then, uh, you know, I started working in his in his group, which was a fantastic band. It's uh Bob McLaren and um, Mark Eisenman and Steve Wallace. And that band stayed together for a long time. That mm. was really a great situation. And um, Sam Sam was the kind of guy that I think, in many ways, I mean, there, there, there are a handful of people that I think really changed the way people play in this town. And he was one of them. I think Claude Ranger was another. And I think Pat LaBarbera was another. Mm. You know, three... Uh, very, very, very different kind of personalities, different kind of players, but all in their own way have made a huge impact, I think, on the jazz scene in Toronto because, you know, from what I saw in the late 70s when I moved here to uh, what was happening through the 80s and and also where things started going in the 90s onward, where, where I, I think um, very much influence by those, certainly by those personalities. I mean, there were some other ones, too. Um, I mean, I think of, personally, I think of it, the only reason I'm holding a Telecaster right now is because of Ed Bicker. Well, then there's that, right? yeah, and then there's that, and, too. And, and the way it, him and, and Don and, and, played and, harmony, too. In a different you know? way, Don Thompson, yeah. of course, yeah. Bernie, Gary Williamson, you know. Um, uh, you know, I, you know, I've been involved in teaching here for a long time, and, and, uh, try to go out of my way and and mention to students some of the people of that generation because all the people that they're listening to now of my generation or a few years older or a few years younger were influenced by these musicians. And, you know, another person I would mention in that uh, uh, same spirit is someone like Sonny Greenwich, who had a huge impact on, on yeah. what was happening here. You know, so so there's there's a whole generation of players that they they were on the scene at a time where things were not quite as accessible as they are now. There was no internet, they didn't record a lot, mm. you know, but there but there was a thriving scene and they were very active. You know, I, I can remember dozens and dozens and dozens of nights going out, you know, going to hear Ed Bickard's trio with Don and Terry or, you know, or, or with Jerry Fuller or, you know, hearing Sonny Greenwich or with, with Claude and Don Thompson. So it really happened in the clubs, like that's where you would A go lot of it was in the clubs, yeah, yeah you know, the, and, and, um, and that was a big, really big part of the scene. I mean, there were a number of clubs happening in, in town at that time. They sort of come and gone, but uh, uh, so there was, there was a lot of that, and um, you know, uh, just 
trying to pass on how important that was to people like myself, or, you know, like, if you think about some of the people on the scene, you know, Brian Dickinson or Mike Murley, you know, we're all of a, a similar kind of generation, Jim Vivian, mm. Barry Romberg, you know, like, coming up, those those were the people that we listened to, and, and you know, Barry Elms, Al Henderson, a little bit older, Lofsky, you know, Eisenman, those kind of people, and and that was kind of, that was the standard. So, you know, if you wanted to get those gigs, you had to learn how to play at least as, you know, as, as well or, or in the same sort of ballpark as these people. And, and so, so it, was, uh, uh, it, it was a way of really keeping the level high, you know, because people sort of earn, earned their way on the bandstand. You know, which was it's it's a nice concept. <laughs> yeah, like I remember I remember when I was uh, when I was a teenager, the internet wasn't really happening yet in the in the 90s, and uh, you know, hearing records from Montreal players or Toronto players or Vancouver players, there's really a different sound happening in each of the cities. Yeah, and I feel like that maybe that has changed a little bit nowadays that uh, we are so connected. Musically online, in some you know? ways, yes, and in other ways, no. I mean, I've been asked that question before, and they go, "Well, what is the Toronto sound, and and or what is the Montreal sound, or the Vancouver, or the New York sound?" And I mean, the fact of the matter is, for me, just me, my opinion, um, the music has always been about individuals to me. You know, the Toronto sound. Okay, well, is it is it Ed Bickard? Or is it Sonny Greenwich, who doesn't even live in Toronto, Completely but different. was associated yeah. with that? You know, or you know, is the Montreal sound? Is it uh, you know, is it Nelson Simons, or is it Sonny Greenwich? Very different players, you know. Mm. Uh, or you look at the piano players in the same thing, you know. It's, uh, so, uh, to me, I've always gravitated towards the individual, you know, mm. and 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 also. Um, I, I think it's nice when when we don't sort of put the music in a box because really it's everything, right? Right. You know. You know what I mean. Yeah. So, so I mean, in, in some ways, th it's there's a generalization. We we'll say, okay, so you know, part of the Toronto sound is like Rob McConnell, Ed, Guido, Mo Kaufman, Eugene Amaro. I mean, that was. Jimmy Dale, you know, Terry Clark, Don, you know, people like that. Like, of a generation, that was the Toronto sound. But, you know, if you looked at people who were more active 15 years later, there would be elements of that. But I think there would be different kind of personalities. And, and for me, I think things kind of changed here at a time when the, the, the whole working situation changed. Toronto was always a very professional town. And I think, you know, uh, when studio work and, and, and how that was all happening started changing, then I think a lot, you know, a lot of the more established players uh, kind of started going back and, and um, Reevaluating what their priorities were, because there wasn't so much at stake financially, perhaps. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, you'd see you'd see many of our, our really great musicians were out in the clubs playing a lot more. All of a sudden, mm -hmm. you know, and developing their own thing. I mean, uh, you know, um, 
but also that's where a lot of the stronger personalities like the Sam Notos and the clothes and people like that uh, perhaps exerted a little more influence on the scene mm. because that's kind of where they always inhabited uh, right. You do know, you think uh, do you think we can have Claude Rangers and uh, Sam Notos nowadays? Do we? I think that's all that's left, really. You yeah. know, I mean, you you could get people that are they're you know sort of chasing the industry, or you get people that are sort of committed to uh, the artistic side of things, uh, that will follow that path. Mm. You know, I mean, I I, I certainly see it with uh, a lot of musicians outside of Toronto. I I also see it with a lot of musicians here. I mean. Um, you know, in my own case, I could say that having that kind of vision has served me well. I've always pursued what I wanted to pursue. Mm. And so I've been able to develop along those lines throughout my life and, and will continue to do so. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a very slow curve. Um, uh, but I, I think it's a worthwhile one. You know, I mean, you, you look, um... You look at a lot of people here. I mean, I think about some of your favorite players, and I think the thing that attracts you about what it is they do is their personality and the honesty and the integrity in which they approach the music. Mm. So that that's that could be. Uh, I mean, that can coexist with the business for the fortunate people that that get that happening. Um, but it's not really about the business; it's about the music, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so, so I, you know, I think there there, there have been times where where the business has maybe uh, been more favorable to those kind of personalities. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it's so much so these days, but I mean, there are a lot of people out there working that I love to listen to, that I feel have those elements in their playing. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I, I think it's uh, an important thing to, to really try and find and follow your own voice. Mm. You know? Yeah, my friend Morgan Childs always says, uh, trust the music, it will take you where you need to go. Exactly. You know? you'll, you'll get what you need. Maybe, maybe not much not more. Not what you want. But no, <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, I mean, in my case, I'd have to say that's true. You know, whatever... Uh, whenever I was kind of up against the wall, something always came in to, to kind of keep things moving. And, and I mean, you know, I'm talking about sustaining something over a period of 40 years. Um, I don't think I'm the only one. I mean, I see a lot, you know, a lot of my peers are still very active, playing great, still, you know, still trying to do something that's relevant and, and um, uh, meaningful. Mm. And, they're, and they're making a difference. So it's you know, I think it's a matter of of uh, choosing how you want to spend your life, and and you know you make decisions about certain aspects of that. Well, let's let's play another tune. Okay. Let's do it. We're gonna do everything. Oh, pardon me. Darn that dream.
Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. Yeah, yeah. Nathan. Sounding great, man. Yeah. You too. Real <laughs> pleasure. <laughs> All right, man. So, uh, you still practicing these days? When I can. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have enough time? How about in the summers? You get a little extra time. You in know the what? It's been so busy. It's uh, I really can't get to it as much as I would like to. Um, but it sure feels good when I can. So, uh, so on a perfect day of uh, practice for Kirk McDonald, what would what would that look like? Um, I don't. That's <laughs> that's a good question. I don't know. Um, I just came back from a little vacation, and and I'm trying to get in shape, and I'm trying to get you know, you know just um, get some things going, um, and and just try and play the horn as much as possible. So, um, you know, I I enjoy um, trying new things, whatever that is. Like, you know, it could be anything, really. Um, but just trying to get a deeper understanding of of things that either elude me or I don't really understand that well or I don't do that well or I, I don't feel I do that well. Um, and sometimes, I mean, I just enjoy trying to get a good sound out of the saxophone, you know. And, and, and it's funny because, um, you know, I do teach a lot and... Um, uh, I think I'm pretty good at um, figuring out what other people need, you know. Um, and I think I'm pretty good at figuring out what I need to do, too. Um, but, um, but it's different, you know. Practicing when you've been playing all your life and practicing when you're trying to put together vocabulary and different things, it's, it's a very different proposition. Um, you know, I mean... If I'm playing and and I'm active, which is what happens most of the time, uh, the saxophone is pretty accessible to me. So 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 uh, I don't necessarily spend a lot of time on maintenance and things like that the way a brass player would, you know. Right. Right. Um, but but I you know I try and look for a flow. So if that's not happening, then then. I try to 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 just play the horn until things are are starting to work for me, mm. and and so, and it's not that that process takes that long. It it, it doesn't necessarily. So, um, you know, but but I I just I just try and take the time to really understand things, whatever it is. I mean, whether it's just you know trying like taking a tune like that. And just trying to play the melody really well, in tune with a good sound, you know, with the right breathing, and you know those kind of things, like yeah. like simple, like yeah. so. So the the longer I play, the simpler the things that I practice tend to be, basic, fundamental kind of things. Um, and then from there, I would I would just um, uh, just try and sort of focus in different areas of, of playing. I mean, it could be anything. One, two, little, you know, little ideas. Mm -hmm. um, more conceptual things, things that I can improvise with. I mean, I, I would say that, um, you know, I, I try to spend a lot of time exploring music when I practice as opposed to mm -hmm. 
you know, sort of uh, more technique. Sort right. Of I, I feel like stuff. I can hear that when I listen to you play. I can hear something being worked out sometimes. Like I feel like you're moving. Like, I don't know. It's it's like you're you're. I can hear a thought process happening when you're playing. Like one of the things that attracts me to your playing the most is is the outside thing, and it's it sounds like you're playing on a variety of different changes mm -hmm. when you when you're playing. And uh, are you? Uh, do you have like a systematic approach to uh, to reharmonization, or is it is this kind of an ear thing or a language based? Uh I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, you know, like you know, we're we're talking about practicing. So so I mean, I I would say okay. So you know, I've got a good forty to forty five years of that under my belt, right? So so you know, the kind of things you 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 work on. When you're trying to develop vocabulary, are very different mm. than than what one might be working on at at, at the other end of that. Yeah, yeah. You know, so of course. Um, uh, you know, I I over the years I've written a lot, and and I think a lot of the things that I work on when I'm practicing are are really related to composition. So it has less to do with playing the instrument and more to do with trying to um uh get more into the music and and uh uh be diligent about how much material to introduce like how you know like I practice trying to create a better solo not that I'm going to go out and play that solo on a gig or rehearse it for the gig but you're working on things in a um a more um organic kind of way like what can i do with one idea mm. you know like if we took that tune during that dream okay so well you know there are intervallic things that happen with the melody you know mm -hmm. like could you create a solo you you know the interval of a perfect fourth or a tritone like some of those things that happen with the melody uh how does that look on those chord changes you know right. and 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 what what are the parameters with those kind of things so, so you know, I try and take simple ideas that I can actually manipulate in different ways musically, which is not really that unlike how one might go about composing. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, take yeah, one yeah. idea. So, what's what's this tune about? Or, or you know, is it a harmonic idea? Is it a rhythmic idea? Is it an intervallic idea? Uh, you know, I suppose if you know the um, I basically write instrumental music, so so the uh, considerations of lyrics don't don't necessarily come into it, right, you know. Right. But 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 you know what it, what are those parameters? Why does it work? What what is it that you're trying to say with that? And what are the connections? Mm. And when is it too obvious? And when is it not obvious enough? So so you know, trying to um, find ways of of um, uh, bettering your ability at making those kind of decisions, which, as you know, when we're playing, happen in the moment. So Constantly, it's it's yeah. it's it's you know it's an organic thing, but it's more of an instinctual thing, which is like, okay, I want to get good at making choices on the bandstand. I mean, I'm pretty good at it now, but I want to get better at that. Mm. So how do how do I find a way to be consistent making good choices musically all the time? Because you know, when you think about all the players you listen to and admire, that's what they did. Mm. You know, so, so I, you know, so, so I work on things like that. They're not specific. They can't be specific. They're specific to me when I'm working on them. But I'm not sure outside of, you know, one's own development how 
important or interesting that might be to someone else because we all have our own process with that. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So so when you're fa when you have a student that is maybe on the beginning of their path and like I feel like they can often be overwhelmed of by course, yeah. how to go, where yeah. to go. Because we have repertoire, we have all the different aspects of improvisation, yeah. composition. So um how do you guide them through that? Well, it, it, again, I mean, it's, it's, it's like we talked about with this. Uh, you know, if you have one choice rather than a thousand choices, find out where the wall is. It's not the wall between, you know, uh, the United States and Mexico, but find, <laughs> find out where the musical wall is, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you look at that and you say, okay, so if I give myself these parameters, what can I do with that? You know, um, I, I just remember, like, from years ago, reading, um, it, it might have been a, a biography or autobiography uh, about Stravinsky, and he was very sick towards the end of his life, and mm -hmm. he was in the hospital, and he had, you know, this nurse that was hounding him about, you know, getting up and being active and doing certain things. And so, you know, so she, you know, she went in and she said, so uh, are we ready to compose today? Do you think you're ready to try composing today, Mr. Stravinsky? He said, well, I don't try to compose. I compose, you know, so when it's time to do it, you do it. So, you know, that kind of always stuck to me that, you know, uh, if you learn how to do things, not that you necessarily would do it on the bandstand, but, you know, if you went home and you learned one thing tonight and something else tomorrow and something the next day, it's, you know, it's affecting the sensibility and in, 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 in the whole of the person or the musician that's important. So you're, you're raising your level so that when you're, you're in those situations that you can actually do something that's, you know... Um, so, you know, if, if you think about things that way, like you're gathering information and you're learning how to do things. Not that you're learning how to do things to present on the gig, but you're learning how to do things so that you get better at making choices, you know, when, when it's time to go out and actually... Mm. So it's not perform. like there's so much of a, a clear end goal, but more a commitment to a process. Well, to me, it's a process. You know, I mean, I, I, if I think uh, in terms of my own development, I mean, I, I certainly spent the first 20, 25, maybe even 30 years, like, really checking out harmony. I mean, and in a lot of different contexts, but, you know, like looking at chord scales, looking at arpeggios, looking at chord substitutions, reharmonizations, all those kind of things. And it's not to say that that's done. It's not by any stretch of the imagination. But then you say, okay, so how how does this serve one getting any closer to creating stronger melodies or this or that? And and I mean also that, you know, uh, for the player, the, the, the process between composition and performance. I mean, that's always been a big one for me. You know, I, I do like to write uh, my own music. And, and for my own expression, that's what is closest to me when I go out to play. But but I also think I've been able to develop that in in a uh, in a real way that's that's connected to the music uh, that has helped get me there. You know, which is standards and jazz repertoire and things like that. So mm. so uh, so I try and take some of those compositional ideas and become a better improviser by being a better composer, mm. right? Because we talk about being spontaneous composers. 
when we improvise. Yeah, well, what what do you got? What do you got for me? You know, well, show so me. So much of this is just br bringing me back to Don Palmer, who's here tonight, mm -hmm. like just reminding me of things that he said. So, so when you when you write a tune, um, do you workshop it with the band, uh, uh, and then play it on gigs and not then record it? Not or much. No, 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 no. I mean, I have lately, but but typically. Uh, when I when I bring something to people, it's uh, it's pretty much done with you know. Um, I mean, I also try and write from the perspective that that people know, you know, the people that I play with are great interpreters, mm. and so I try to leave out whatever is necessary to leave out. You know, so I've learned how to, to, to over the years, write in, in a way that allows room for people to interpret the music and, and bring their own personality into it. Mm. And, th and that's, you know, that's, that's something I, I, f I really feel good about, actually, that, you know, people respond to your music in a certain way where they go, yeah, this is fun to play, you know, like... Uh, and and there's room for them to to add their personality and 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 improvise yeah. and reharm and you know because I mean for me the model is kind of a, a cross between you know great say show tune writers and great jazz composers you know I mean I I really. Uh, love to to try and find strong melodies, mm. much like you know yeah. Gershwin or Cole Porter or Irving Berlin or people like that. Um, but I also like to take the time to really you know investigate the harmony. I mean, I think I, I definitely have a jazz sensibility when it comes to that. So mm. you know, I'll, I'll I'll take the time to to um, find. Uh, harmonies that, that feel good mm -hmm. from a player's perspective, but also that serve the melodies well. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so, the, you know, the, like there's kind of a, a, a weird dichotomy of, of influences there, but, but it works for me, mm -hmm. you know? And as a player, that's an attractive thing to do um, because there's, there's room, you know, I like, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to think about writing tunes that are fun to play where I can play it differently tonight than I did last night. Mm. You know, where it's not that specific where I need you to do this here now. Right. Otherwise the tune doesn't work or the integrity of the tune doesn't work. Well, that's not necessarily a great composition. But, you know, you take a thing, you know, a tune like How Deep Is the Ocean or All the Things You Are or, you know... Um, Easy to love, or you know, whatever. These tunes have been played mm. so many different ways. So, so that's kind of the too, model right? for me. Is, yeah. is you know, like oh. sort of Wayne Shorter meets Cole Porter meets Horace Silver meets John Coltrane <laughs> meets Serving <laughs> Berlin, blah right, blah right. blah. You know, um, yeah. So um, I, I, here's a guess that uh, you and Lauren Lofsky have a really good connection in terms of like harmony. Have you guys developed that together? Would you say? In some ways, in some ways, and yeah. in other ways, we've just maybe influenced each other that way. I mean, it's interesting, you know. Um, I mean, I still remember hearing Lauren Lasky for the first time, and I was like, "Wow, this is unbelievable!" And it was it was a place um, called Cafe Soho, 
and I'm thinking the year might have been 1979, possibly 1980. Now, I didn't know Lorne, but I knew of him. And Cafe Soho was, was an after-hours place. Um, it's now the Rivoli, if that's still there. Oh, yeah. I think right? it is. And yeah. it was upstairs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I was too young at the time. I didn't know this. But, you know, you could get a coffee after hours, which was kind of a scotch. But, uh-huh. but I, you know, I wasn't drinking. They, they called it days. cold tea when I was cold uh, tea in my early 20s. Chinatown. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> but um, anyway, so y- you would play there from one till about five or six. And um, I remember going in there one night, and Lauren Lasky was playing duel with Bob Bruff. Heavy. And, and yeah, it was heavy. It was it was fantastic. And you know, I mean, some at some point after that, I met Lauren. Can't remember where, but you know, um, we used to get together all the time. Now, and at the time, it was interesting because Lauren was always into um, uh, Bill Evans, and I, I mean, I was into Bill Evans too. But um, through my studies with Don Palmer. Sorry, I don't mean to exclude you here, but uh, uh, you know, I mean, some some of my earlier influences were Lee Konitz, Warren Marsh, you know, along with people like Charlie Parker and John Coltrane and Sonny Rollins, and uh, but I, uh, through Don's influence, I was uh, very much aware of those players from you know the time I was fifteen or sixteen, mm. uh, long before they they sort of got the recognition that they so richly deserved and, and now have, I think, at least amongst musicians. Um, but uh, so Lorne and I used to get together and play duos. And, you know, I kind of turned them on to Lee and Lenny. And, mm. and so, you know, because I, I, I knew a lot of those tunes at that time. He right. didn't, and he knew a lot of Bill Evans tunes. So... So, you know, we would have this thing where I would bring in subconsciously and he would teach me very early and then the next week I'd come in and he'd, you know, with uh, 317, he's 32nd or something, you know. And, and so that that was like a really, you know, a really uh, uh, sort of symbiotic relationship we've always had. I mean, it's always been great playing with him. Um, well, you can really hear it because, well, for me, when I was 15 or 16, the Atlantic Sessions was really my favorite record in the world and also all my friends like you know this is in Halifax and we didn't have a lot of CDs even there you know right and the Atlantic Sessions was like wow what is this and, mm-hmm. it, and it was also it served as a model for uh, what a quartet could be with guitar as the comping instrument yeah which is very rare it, mm-hmm. re- it really is rare I mean apart from uh, I guess uh, Jim Hall and Sonny Rollins uh, in terms of like a traditional kind of sounding band modern jazz band yeah that was like one of the only ones that I had and uh I really love that. Oh, that thank album. you. Yeah. Yeah. And you've told me a little bit about the recording of that album, but maybe you want to. Well, about I could do that. I mean, you know, um, interestingly enough, uh, we had recorded something before that. Oh, really? Under Lauren's name that never came out. Wow. Here in town, here with that uh, that exact same band. You still have it? I haven't heard it in years. Oh man, Get Lauren, on that. Lauren might have access. I, you know, I, I don't, I, I doubt it ever will come out. But it, but it was, a, it was a nice recording, and I, I can't even remember what we recorded. And for some reason, uh, you know, it, 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 it never saw the light of day. Uh, probably never will, which is unfortunate. But, 
Uh, we were appearing at the Halifax Jazz Festival, and um, and probably as a result of that record, I thought, okay, it'd be nice to do something. Um, my brother owned a recording studio at the time, so I asked him to uh, uh, record the band. We didn't have a lot of time, and uh, we had to borrow equipment to make it work, and some of the equipment was faulty. So I think that whole record was done in about three and a half hours. Whoa. Maybe That's maybe four. Unbelievable. Over two days, and it, and it was like, so they, there, there were some real glitches. The amp, the guitar amp was breaking up. It was a a loner from the Halifax Festival, didn't work. We were all sort of sitting around the studio waiting for another amp to show up. Um, and then uh, people either had flights the next day. I can't remember what happened. I think the second day we had about an hour and a half, which we put a couple of tunes down. And, um, and there were also problems because we decided, I mean, the nice thing about that record, and, and we paid for it in, in the uh, post-production, but the nice thing about that record is we recorded live off the floor. Now, when I say live off the floor, I mean with no headphones. We were all in the same room. You know, um, there was as much isolation as you could get. But basically, we played, we played it without headphones, which was good for the music, but was bad for the recording. So, so we, had, we had issues we had to deal with, with with cleaning up the recording and things like that after the fact. And I think Andre White was involved in in, in that, um, but but a, a, yeah, really nice record. Well, I, I think, I think yeah. the sound, like I mean, you can really hear that room. I mean, that yeah. must have been a good room, though. That's something that's so striking about that recording. The it, room it, sound it was on the a, it was, it, Yeah, it was a it, w it was a good room to play in. It wouldn't be as big as you might expect to do a record like that. It really wasn't. I, I can't remember the size of the room. I mean, it wasn't a huge room, but it was big enough to do that. And we tried to do it that way. And and it worked out. Musically, it worked out. I mean, no engineer is going to want to record that way. They go too many, you know, way too many issues, you know. Yeah. And like even now, and, and so usually it's on the musicians to, to make the compromise and use headphones and, and do that for the sake of the production. And... And I mean, I, I've done both. I can I can see it from 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 uh, both sides of that. But but typically the the the, the process seems to favor you know trying you know trying trying to get a cleaner sound in the studio, mm. and and that process doesn't work so great in in many studios. You know, it, it's it's unfortunate, but that's I mean that's the reality. And you know the other thing to think about is is like if you're doing a studio recording, it's 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 a very it's it's a very different proposition than playing live. It's so so different. so, yeah. so you 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 need to to at least consider uh, what that is, you know, in, in terms of how you you approach making a record, mm. you know. So uh, if you understand the process, you go okay. These these are the parameters. We do the best we can with that. You know, right. so. Wow, man. Well, it's been such a pleasure. It's yeah. It's been really fun. So I have a thousand questions for you, but we only have so, only have so much time. So okay. Let's play another tune, and uh, and uh, maybe before we do, uh, maybe you could let us know uh, where you're playing coming up. Is there any uh, okay? Gigs What's on coming the up? Yeah, I got some things. Um, 
I mean, the next gig I have is at this small pub out in the East End called the Black Bear Pub, and it's, uh, it's with Lauren Lasky, September 8th. Um, Great. After that, um, speaking of recording, um, uh, working out the final details, but uh, I'll be at the Rex with Pat LaBarbera, Quintet with Joe LaBarbera, Neil Swainson, and Brian Dickinson. Uh, playing the music of the great John Coltrane, September 20th through the 22nd. We're planning on recording live. Wow. Finally, Pat and I have been doing this for 20, I'm going to say 27 years. I missed one year, he missed one year. So uh, if the math is right, we started in 92, 26, 27 years. Uh, this might be year 25, which is maybe it's time we recorded this thing. I would say so. so. Yeah. Anyway, so we're we're trying to finalize some details around that. That's happening. I have a new record coming out, uh, ballads CD. Uh, should be out in October. Still working out details on that. Uh, it's a quartet featuring Harold Mayburn, Neil Swainson, and Andre White. My daughter. Uh, Virginia Frigo McDonald also guests on that on four tunes, so nice. I'm happy about that. Cool. Um, and some other things. I got some things with Joe Sullivan coming up in October. And uh, great. So you know your website, uh, KirkMcDonald.com. Uh, it'll be updated soon. Yes, you can check out my website. I have many CDs uh, you can find as well, 14 or so under my own name, and uh, they're out there. Still have a few sitting Great. around. You want to buy them? Check nice, them out. Nice, nice. Yeah. Okay. Nathan. All right, Kirk. Pleasure, thank you very man. Much. It's thank been a you. pleasure, man. Yeah. What would you like to play for our last tune? How about uh, I've never been in love before? All right, perfect. Thank you. 